This is Immerse, the podcast and book. Composer, sound artist Charlie Morrow explores immersion in public events, broadcasts, music, installations, and environmental systems. Immerse compares timelines in conversations with more than 40 collaborators. Immerse. 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 I'm Charlie Morrow, and my Immerse podcast will guide you through the world of immersive experience in sound, light, and space. Welcome. Donc cette nuit, on a fait des mesures de quantification de l'acoustique de l'intérieur de Notre-Dame. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking with Brian Katz, acoustician, CNRS Research Director at Sorbonne University's Institute Jean-Laurent d'Alembert Sound Lab, a specialist in spatial hearing, room acoustics, and virtual reality. Hello, Brian. How are you? I had wanted to um, interview you for Immerse, the podcast and the book to talk to you about immersivity in general okay. and the work that uh, you've been doing. Also, it's an, an important fact of life that our collaboration led to my work in 3D sound because it was a conversation that we had in New York that led me in this direction. So, Because uh, I was uh, working as a 3D sound maker with public events, mixture of broadcast, but not at all doing anything with... Um, electronic 3D. The way I've been doing all my interviews is I start with present projects that are immersive and then look at the history that led up to them, you know, back to whatever, where you might say, well, with 3D sound actually is related to childhood experiences where I um, did XYZ. Uh, I'm using timeline to kind of link things up. So I would ask you then about what, what are you doing with that currently? I mean, currently, our work is kind of in two major categories. The first is improving the quality of immersive audio over headphones. And that's really looking into how to take into account the individual nature of spatial hearing and how it relates to kind of the form of your ear. And when you do a a virtual rendering of spatial audio over headphones, you're making assumptions about the acoustics of the listener's ears. Previous efforts to generalize that haven't worked very well, kind of dummy head recordings, and we're trying to go beyond that and to see how, with minimal effort, can we adapt rendering engines to optimize to the individual listener. And some of the efforts that we're doing at the moment are actually, how can we train or aid the human listener to adapt to the rendering engine? because there's been some progress in that in a number of things that we've done. And so we're pursuing that as a way that you, instead of having the system adapt to you, you adapt to the system. And then with a bit of training, basically kind of making some customized video games or interactions, you can actually learn to listen through the ears 
of the machine rather than the machine improving its ability to render towards you. And right now we're doing an experiment that's looking at that plus what is the impact of room acoustic rendering on the sense of immersion and how important is an accurate acoustic simulation of the environment contribute to senses of externalization and stability and immersion. So that's one big project that we're working on. And the second is really looking at room acoustics simulations. And right now, a lot of it is on uh, virtual recreations of historic places. And that's coming out of work in partnership with theater historians who have been interested in how the progression of the, the voice has been used in history and does it relate to the acoustics of the space as one example. Uh, we also looked at uh, reconstructions of uh, Notre Dame Cathedral and, and some other cathedrals, looking at what is the acoustics of these spaces today and can we project into what they would have been in the past when the decorations were different and the use was different. So trying to get kind of this a scientific look back in history or archaeoacoustics or archaeological acoustics point of view in room acoustics. And these two projects kind of work together because in order to evaluate the, the spatiality and the, the nature of these large spaces like Notre Dame Cathedral, you need to be immersed in the sound. So the quality of the rendering engine impacts quality of depreciation of the virtual simulation. That's kind of an overview, I think, of what I'm doing. Uh, it's very well put. I appreciate the clarity of, of, of your explanation. I've been particularly interested in the work that you've done with headphone sound localization. You've gone through a series of projects in which you've um, been able to continue to improve apps for, for headphone sound localization. Could you talk about that? That's all kind of in the context of this improving the quality of binaural audio or the, the rendering of spatial audio over headphones. So the first project I did on that was uh, my PhD thesis, was really trying to do a computer simulation of the acoustical properties of the outer ear, something that had been kind of talked about but never really studied in that kind of detail. And that kind of opened up this new branch of study of looking into what is the, the connection between the, the acoustical properties of the outer ear, how that impacts spatial hearing, how to customize uh, the rendering engines. So that kind of led into kind of a whole direction of, of a series of studies. So we've been looking more recently into a application, like real world application. So not so much laboratory experiment, for example, working with sound engineers and content creators and trying to look at what, what are the effects or the situations that they're interested in creating and how to improve the rendering engines. Historically, kind of binaural rendering engines would basically recreate a, an anechoic kind of silent space with a, a single sound at like two meters away. So one of the first things that we realized was that people are, were doing more interactive content and virtual and augmented reality content but also some storytelling. And the idea of proximity came out as something that was quite interesting that not a lot of people had worked in. So we've done a number of series on how to improve the, the sense of proximity. So when a sound is at 
a few centimeters in front of your ear, it sounds very different than the sound at the same level coming from two meters away. So we've been pushing the, our rendering engine to kind of improve that. And the other is just the question of externalization. And uh, listening over headphones kind of has a history of, if you listen to a stereo recording over headphones, there's it doesn't take into account the acoustics of the head and the ear when you're listening to something over speakers. And the result of that is that it feels like it's playing inside your head. So we've been looking at a number of issues that are perceptual issues and acoustics issues of how to help the listener believe that the sound is coming from the world around them and not being played inside their head over headphones. So we've been looking at the impact of, of head tracking on, on 3D audio recreations in, in such that if there's a, an orientation tracker on the headphones, then you can basically update the rendering in real time so that things are stable. Because one of the issues that comes across in headphone listening is if I move my head and I don't take into account that dynamic, then the world moves with me and that kind of collapses the, the image inside your head. But if when I turn my head, the whole soundscape rests in the, the outside world reference frame, then that helps the perception that things are, are actually happening out in the real world. So we've been looking at that. We're doing a study right now on, on actually how to simulate that in the event of not having a, a head tracker. So can we instill small movements in the sound scene that help give you the impression that it's stable out in the world, uh, even if I don't have a head tracker. That's terrific. Good. Well, thank you. The uh, other part of the discussion I'm curious is just your own interest in um, in sound and the way it has, you know, affected your life and uh, a kind of personal history and timeline with the immersive sound. I've never really thought about it in a in a long in a long context. I mean, recently with the work that we've been doing on, on Notre Dame Cathedral, it's I was looking for some history, some some documentation, and we're also starting a new project on the impact of room acoustics on period music and, for example, Baroque music and early classical music. Because there's a number of kind of research projects, and we're in one of looking at the historically informed performance. And you have groups of musicians who are trying to really recreate the style of playing uh, at the time of Baroque music using uh, facsimiles of period instruments and trying to reproduce the gestures and everything. And no one's really looked at the, the impact of the room acoustics. So they're doing these performances in modern concert halls or, or things built like in the 60s, which are quite different. So we're starting a new project, one of them in, in partnership with the Chateau de Versailles to really see what the impact of simulating some of the acoustics of the actual world performance places is on music. And in trying to find some information about that, I ran across some books that I had that I realized were my bar mitzvah gift. Because at the time, I was thinking about being an architect, and I received this collection of medieval and Baroque architecture books. And I've actually gone back to use them, so it kind of brought back the memories that way. So I think I was more interested in architecture to begin with. And then that kind of went into physics and coming out of uh, with a, a bachelor's degree in physics and then a master's degree in applied physics. I was having difficulty in where research in that domain was going because it was either micro atomic physics or astrophysics. 
And at the same time, I'd been doing some work as a, a sound system install, not installer, but basically doing the sound for some bands and some music events on campus. So I kind of was learning a bit of acoustics at a, a practical way and then decided to, to do a PhD and found out that there was a school that where you could do a PhD in acoustics. And that kind of felt comfortable to what I was interested in and got into acoustics that way. Um, and that meant went into the 3D audio. Not being really a musician, I'm always kind of more interested in the listening of the the space than the actual content at times. So after getting a PhD in acoustics, I went into room acoustic consulting and working with a number of companies that design performance spaces. And that came in more of a an insight in how to listen to the space. And I think that's really where my the immersive nature of, of what I was doing really blossomed because, at least in, in, in my opinion, what makes a very good concert hall is one where you really are immersed in the sound and there's kind of an interesting spatial dynamic to it. And that's now carried on to what I've been doing in research now for almost 20 years in, in this kind of virtual acoustics field of interest. Yeah, that is fascinating, and considering that over the last 20 years, uh, that's, those are the years that, that we have known each other. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, our relationship has so influenced my work enormously, although we haven't been actively collaborating, but here and there, uh, our dialogue came at a critical moment in my evolution, coming from being a large-scale event maker with broadcast elements mixed together than to be able to deal with installations and then room acoustics as well as the acoustics of musical instruments and the head itself and beyond that the psychoacoustics that it's all being built by our brains which is indeed a fascinating part of it. I'd like to just digress to one historical study that uh, I read that was actually uh, some studies from, I thought, Montpellier, where a couple hundred years ago noticed that people who had had severe damage to their their facial bones couldn't localize sound. I wonder if you know anything about this area where once the head changes, it's not just the ears, but the, the face and uh, the shape, shape of the splash of sound against the head can no longer be matched against memories. I wonder what you have to say about that. No, I'm not at all familiar with that study. I mean, we, with kind of looking at, at what we've been working on with this kind of retraining or relearning to listen with new ears or the ears of somebody else and how successful that's been, that would almost lead me to believe that in that study, maybe there was more damage to uh, their inner ear and the auditory system than just a change in the, the shape of the face. Uh, I mean, we've done a number of studies, for example, uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but basically just having two ears doing a recording without a head. So you have none of the acoustic head shadowing, but you still have the effect of the pinna and you still have some reasonable ability to localize because you still have the time difference in the low frequency and the high frequency difference in the pinna. So I kind of question what the medical conditions were that were behind that study. Because I think a lot of what we've been working on is actually showing that you can relearn. And there's been studies that were kind of the inspiration of our work, which were uh, a number of people putting like uh, 
insets into the, the pinna to change the shape and looking at how over the course of a few weeks people could adapt to that change. And there's an, even an older study, one of the very first studies on this kind of how well can the brain adapt with a researcher who actually just wore a hat that had two funnels on it and crossed using just tubes what was into the left ear, into the right ear, and the right ear, into the left ear. And even such a huge radical change like that, he was able to adapt in, in some situations over the course of, I think he wore it maybe a month for every waking hour. So I think the, the human auditory system is incredibly robust and malleable uh, in order to adapt to things like that. So that, that's how I would, I would see as a response to that kind of study. Well, thank you. That was very astute, and uh, I, I would uh, agree with you from what you're saying. And is there anything else that you would wish to share? Because you've answered all my questions. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think while we haven't like collaborated a lot, yeah, I think there's been a lot of moments of kind of exchanging ideas and just bouncing thoughts back and forth, which is the informal part of collaboration that happens. I mean, a lot, quite a lot in research. You know, you want to just kind of throw ideas out and see how the community responds before going further. And I think we've been able to do that uh, a lot on things and it's been kind of fun. I think if I look concretely, what I remember learning the most from our interactions actually goes back to when we were working on uh, your studio and I learned what a Brooklyn contractor is willing to do and not do. And I think that's what I learned the most and has helped me the most in my career since then is what to look out for, for things like that. But I don't know if that's really appropriate to the discussion. It's appropriate to any discussion. <laughs> it's a, an analog of my cousin Wally's advice to me when I went to Columbia from New Jersey. He, very savvy Bostonian Harvard graduate, he said, Charlie, when you go to New York and you shake hands, count your fingers. <laughs> Yeah, that would probably be how I'd remember that that guy as well. <laughs> I still remember his uh, what golden diamond dollar sign necklace. I recall that he said that the contractors met once a year in Las Vegas. And the, the whole idea of, of a tribe or a herd of, of these characters is <laughs> probably snorting and laughing about the schmucks in the world. <laughs> exactly. Spending their hard-earned cash. <laughs> I, th I thought about him uh, recently. We saw Moonstruck, as <laughs> a, a plumber who's shares uh, dad. <laughs> it was a Brooklyn plumber. They, they make even more than contractors, I think. <laughs> hey, well, thank you very much. I have a, a project that I would like to share with you. Uh, we've taken our software uh, very far forward, and we've begun to do work with... Um, natural sound masking, which is a mixture of equalized sound, not a, a noise, plus certain natural sounds in order that the spaces we're working in, people don't zone out in. We found that noise alone is not acceptable. And we're starting to get a lot of interest in this. We'd also use those noise sounds to create tones, uh, emotional tones. Uh, like in a David Lynch movie, we were scoring an experience I think it's in Latvia. It's a, called the Lost Shtetl, and it's a museum in which you go room by room. First of all, this is a country in which there are no longer any Jews, and this is a, paid for by a rich Swiss 
expat paying Applebaum to build it, and the visitors will first see life in the shtetl, and in the end they'll experience being massacred like fish in the back of a, a truck. And so we'd be adding notes and tones and quality, you know, what do you call it? Emotionally stimulating noise, room by room. So I, I wanted a soundtrack, making a soundtrack out of the actual experience. And so I wanted to uh, share a little of that with you because it relates to a number of projects that we're doing. And Okay, well, uh, I'm going to turn the, this off and uh, hope to our paths cross sometime soon. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast and book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. I'm Anea Lockwood. Immerse, 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 immerse,